0: This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, come, sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us worship God. <laughs>
1: Oh give thanks to the Lord for God is good for God's steadfast love endures forever Happy are those who observe justice who do righteousness at all times God, you open wide the doors of your kingdom and welcome us into your presence, all of us, saints and sinners, those full of faith and those full of doubts alike. We come before you with joy and uncertainty to meet you here, to bless and be blessed at your font, to taste and see your goodness, to celebrate your grace and tenderness in our lives. May your spirit inspire our gratitude and give us reason to hope as we worship together in your presence. We pray in the name of the triune God.
0: Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathering in this location as well as those who are worshiping in other locations, including those who couldn't cross Market Street today, we are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord, and because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. We are glad you are here. We would like to ask everyone, members and guests alike, please to sign the Friendship Pad, which you'll see located on the inside edge of your pew. If you will sign your name and send it down and back again, we will have the advantage of each other's names at the conclusion of worship. And likewise, we'd like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to the right of the pulpit and down a short ramp. There you will find our deacons have prepared light refreshments, but most importantly, an opportunity for us to be together. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin and one that's not in the announcements, but that you'll see in your weekly e-news tomorrow. The first is to note that today is the second of a two-part lecture series by the Reverend Jesse Garner. That takes place in the McCall Room, which is basically just up the stairs as you get, as you leave the Fellowship Hall, uh, Old Buttonwood Hall. That starts at 12.45, lunch is provided. Please do come up. And hear what Jesse has to say about First Church and social change through the centuries. I'd like to note as well that as part of our search process for our new organist, Choir Master, the search committee covets listening sessions with you, the congregation. And you'll see a notice in the uh, bulletin that calls attention to when those listening sessions will take place. Please do take part in one of those to share with our search committee Uh, What's on your mind regarding the future of music here at First Church? You'll see as well a notice that we are looking to form a membership class in the coming weeks or the next month and a half or so. If you are interested in joining this church, whether you have been with us a long time or perhaps even a very short time, just let me know, let Laura know, let either of us know, and we will make sure that uh, your schedule is taken into account as we try to schedule that new members class Finally, uh, the book, Our Legacy of Faith, which I know a great many of you are already enjoying, is available in the Beadle Room, which is just outside Old Buttonwood Hall, uh, for uh, your purchase today, for a suggested donation of $20. And like I said, there are a great many other things. One that I do want you to note, though, coming up on the 5th of November will be the 325th anniversary celebration for our congregation. That should be a wonderful service. The... There's a great deal of planning going into it, a reception afterwards, but it is also, and importantly, the Sunday that we observe all saints here at First Church. So if there is someone who is dear to you, who has entered into the church triumphant in the last year, since last November, please give those names to the church office so that we can be sure to include our gratitude for your friends, for your loved ones' lives during the communion liturgy on All Saints Sunday You can send that to the church office, or if you're signed up for our weekly e-news, there'll be a notice about it tomorrow. You can click through on that and just make sure we have all the names. We don't want to leave anybody out. If If they have entered into the church triumphant in the last year, please let us know. With all of these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin.
1: In our American society today, we can often center ourselves around this idea of innocence, of proving the innocence of others and the innocence of ourselves. We can be fearful of recognizing all the ways that we are capable of doing wrong, all the ways that we have done wrong. But when we come to this time of confession each week, we dare to lift the veil in our lives to disrupt the illusion of innocence. We don't do this out of fear or out of guilt or out of shame, but instead trusting that by seeking truth, we will be made whole once again. So, friends, come. Let us bring our truths before the divine, trusting that God is eagerly waiting to restore us, to reconcile us, and make us whole. Let us pray. Eternal God, remind us of the promises of our baptism so that we may come with confidence to seek your healing grace in our lives. We confess that sometimes it is easy to be disciples of Jesus when your words bring comfort, when your ways bring reconciliation, when we are filled with joy in our communal life. At times, it is a good and easy thing to be your people. But when your word offers conviction for our sins, When following you demands changes to our lives, when being disciples grows costly, then it is not so easy. But you are a God of our whole lives. Forgive us, we pray, for those moments when we choose the one but neglect the other. Give us the security of your love, which embraces us at all times. We hold a mirror up to our lives. God meets us with grace and unconditional love. God sees us. God hears us. God accepts us and sets us free to begin again. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are free. Our first scripture lesson for this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. Listen for God's word for you. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, take off your gold rings that are on your ears of your wives and your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed them in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron proclaimed and said to them, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely, They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are our gods, O Israel, who have brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed God's mind about the disaster that God planned to bring upon God's people. Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Listen again for God's word for you. Therefore, my brothers and sisters who I love and long for, My joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I also command you, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about every, anything, but in everything be in prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requ- requests be made to the, to the Lord. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May God offer a blessing to these readings.
0: Our final reading of scripture comes to us today from the gospel according to Matthew. There we read in the 22nd chapter, the first 14 verses. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But then the king came in to see the guests, and he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, How did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable even pleasing in your sight o oh lord our strength and our redeemer amen in the category of guilty pleasures i confess to being a an avid reader of the Miss Manners column in the Washington Post. Students of etiquette will know that for years, Judith Martin stood as the arbiter of all things polite. Now joined with her son and daughter in the endeavor, she reminds us that the purpose of good manners is to set others at ease. I am frequently amazed at the practicality of the advice she dispenses, for instance, One should not provide an excuse when declining an invitation. How many evasions and half-truths could I have avoided in my life if I had learned this at a younger age? But, she counsels, if one is canceling a previously made commitment, you better offer a really good excuse. One of the most important points she makes, though, is that the only offense worse than bad manners is pointing out someone else's breach of etiquette. That, she regularly reminds us, can never be considered the right thing to do. As satisfying as it might seem to be and we all know those moments when we would like to say something cutting to the line cutter who has gone before us, or something caustic to the person eating straight from the buffet, it is not okay, because good manners are something that we alone are responsible for living. And yet here in the pages of Matthew's gospel, and also in Luke's, we have a parable where it appears that the cardinal rule of etiquette has been ignored. Not only is the hapless offender publicly taken to task, the end result of being held accountable is to be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Such stories, such parables, surely must land in our minds abruptly, harshly. Weeping and gnashing of teeth may be well and good for a rhetorical flourish, but if we take seriously the words of the gospel, such words seemingly blow an ill wind into the culture of grace we take the gospel to be about. Parables such as the one we encounter this morning seem such a very long way. From, say, Matthew 11, where Jesus says more tender words, such as, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, there are moments, to be sure, when such words about measures of lavish grace come upon us as refreshingly as that first breath of Cold air upon exiting the stuffy confines of the overheated living room on Thanksgiving Day, to have labored long, unnoticed, unsure if our efforts are in vain, unclear if what we think is the most important thing, in fact, is the most important thing, to receive under such circumstances assurances that God has acted for us. That what Jesus did for humankind is sufficient for all that is ever needed. To hear then that the burden is easy and the yoke is light is to be offered rest when rest is what is most needed. But rest is not always what humankind needs. Too often, I fear, such words of rest come not when we have labored long, but when we have not yet labored. Such assurances then could usher us into nihilistic fatalism, such as we encounter when we hear that most people now believe that climate change is real and yet feel there is nothing to be done about it, or to think that a word of resistance is futile in the face of creeping institutional anti-Semitism, or when we decry the degradation of civil discourse, but nonetheless hew to our own favorite opinions, as though feeling fervently is as worthwhile as judging rightly. Sometimes, The gracious word is the word that offers us work. That is where the grace of God comes to us from the outer darkness, in the assurance that there are things worth sticking up for, things worth fighting for. Sometimes the wedding clothes really do matter. We are not speaking of color-themed ceremonies. I, I recently heard of a wedding where there were bouncers in the narthex of the church to turn away anyone who failed to heed the dress code instructions on the invitation. I'm not sure Miss Manners would approve. But Matthew's Miss Manners moment runs to things more profound than the color of the garment Because this parable gets at the heart of what it is to be Christian. Not merely to believe certain doctrines, but to live into the fullness of what it is to be in Jesus Christ, to dwell in the gospel. With all that that means for us, that we are freed from sin, that we are freed to return to our humanity, where we remember that made in God's image, God calls us to join with God in a new world, or as we frequently hear in the Gospels, in the Kingdom of God or the reign of Christ, such an invitation would have been a concern of great urgency for Matthew's congregation. Now, if you're familiar with Luke's version of the same parable, that of the great banquet, it still presents a visceral reaction to the rejection of an invitation, but it's a little less harsh in its presentation. No armies are sent out to kill anybody in Luke. No homes are destroyed. No one is even cast into the outer darkness. And the difference in the presentation of the parable may well come down to the difference in the intended audience of those two different Gospels. Because when Luke wrote for a Greek audience, whereas Luke wrote for a Greek audience, Matthew wrote for a Jewish audience in and around Jerusalem. So where Luke's audience might well have been insulated from the trauma visited upon Jerusalem by the Roman army, Matthew's audience would have had a front row seat to the destruction rained down on his people. So for Matthew, there's a great deal more at stake in the presentation of this parable. Because identity is what is at stake. What does it mean to be The Christian Church. A vital question for Matthew's congregation as they perhaps at this moment inched their way out of the synagogue and into the nascent church. And so for Matthew, there is a certain amount of urgency that is necessary in this narrative. In Matthew's gospel, this parable of the great banquet is classically understood as an allegory allegory like apocalyptic disrupts our bedtime reading and invites us to take a closer look at the characters and the progression of the story. Matthew's audience likely would have already identified everyone in the story, and I think with minimal imagination, so we can too, I suspect. The king represents God, Jesus is the son, and the marriage feast is the culmination of human history at the end of time. The slaves sent out are the prophets, the original guests were the people of Israel, and the substitute guests are the church. And if the parable stopped here, as it does in Luke, it would give us insight into how Matthew's church understood what God was doing in the world, what God was doing in calling them into a new existence as church, But it wouldn't necessarily inject urgency into how we see ourselves in the reign of Christ. But the parable doesn't stop here. The king, surveying those who have been compelled into the banquet hall, trains his eye on one hapless guest. Now, we have all seen a guest like this at a wedding somewhere. you know the, the one that goes on eating, smacking and chewing loudly all through the wedding toast, the overserved oaf that walks between the photographer and the bride and groom as the cake is being cut. But Matthew's mismanners moment isn't about a breach of etiquette, as egregious as the guest's attire may seem. No, it is about a fundamental failure of understanding. Tom Long writes, Sure, the spotlighted guest in the parable was pressed in off the street unexpectedly and was probably wearing cutoffs and and clodhoppers. But when he got inside, only a fool would fail to see the difference between what he wore and where he was. He was in the banquet hall of the king. He was at the wedding feast of the royal son. The table was set with the finest food. The best wine flowed from regal chalices. He is the recipient of massive grace. Where is his all? Where is his wonder? Where is his regard for generosity? Questions, perhaps, we ask ourselves. Questions we should ask ourselves. Because the church must always guard against the incursion of cheap grace into our common life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer defines it thusly. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to the idea is held to be itself sufficient to secure the remission of sins. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer concludes, means the justification of the sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, so everything can remain as it was before. There is a big difference between free grace and cheap grace. Free grace is what God deals in. We cannot earn it, We do not merit it, nor can we escape it. Cheap grace is its opposite. It can be traded for favors. It can be held conditionally. It can be used to reduce human faith to nothing more than a sentence of assent. And free grace and cheap grace are nothing alike. Unlike Free grace, which offers us transformation and redemption, cheap grace has no value. It changes nothing. It moves nothing. It is worthless. Tom concludes, come into the church in response to the gracious altogether unmerited invitation of Christ and then not to conform one's life to that mercy is to demonstrate spiritual narcissism so profound that one cannot tell the difference between the wedding feast of the Lamb of God and happy hour in a bus station bar. The preacher must always be on guard against the incursion of cheap grace into the sermon, because the Christian must always be on guard against the incursion of cheap grace into their life. And I, I recognize that such words perhaps land in a way that may feel short of hope, short of good news, And as direct as the warning in this allegory is, I believe nonetheless that it is a text filled with hope, because one does not warn against that which is inevitable. If cheap grace would plunge us into an outer darkness bereft of the warmth of a life of hope and meaning, the gracious mercy of God promises us instead forgiveness and redemption. And though this parable tells us something profoundly important about the gospel, it is not the end of the gospel. Because the penultimate move in the story of grace is a cross where the Son himself goes into the outer darkness of degradation and alienation. And that is not the end of the gospel. Because the end... Is resurrection the end is life the end is hope and this Sunday as every Sunday there are an infinite number of directions we can go from here if we were a book club we could cut straight to the discussion questions now If this were an NPR fundraiser, we'd open our phone banks for your secure pledge or direct you to our website for a QR code. If this were a country club, we could invite you to find a sponsor and submit an application. But we are none of these things. We are the Church of Jesus Christ, who are the recipients of the free grace of God. And that means there is but one way. us to go, to do the work of the gospel, and to that there remains only this, to be so immersed in the wonder of God's grace that deeds of generosity spring from our hands, that words of kindness flow from our lips, and our whole lives proclaim how great thou art. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. be seated. At this point in our service, we come with joy to the sacrament of baptism. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hear as well these words from the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised, from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. And so obeying the word of our Lord Jesus and confident of his promises, we baptize those whom God has called. In baptism, God claims us and seals us to show that we belong to God, God frees us from sin and death, uniting us with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. By water and the Holy Spirit, we are made members of the church, the body of Christ, and joined to Christ's ministry of love, peace, and justice. So let us remember with joy our own baptism, even as we celebrate this sacrament.
1: On behalf of this session, I present Miles Benedict Yep Sindel, son of Luke Sindel and Becky Yep, to receive the sacrament of baptism.
0: Do you desire that Miles should be baptized? Relying on God's grace, do you promise to live the Christian faith and teach that faith to your child?
1: Do you, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, promise to guide and nurture Miles by word and deed, with love and prayer, encouraging him to know and follow Christ, and to be a faithful member of his church? If so, please respond by saying, we do. We do. Through baptism, we enter the covenant God has established. Within this covenant, God gives us new life, guards us from evil, and nurtures us in love. In embracing that covenant, we choose whom we serve by turning from evil and turning, turning away from evil and turning to Jesus Christ. And now we are all invited to rise in body or spirit to, pos- to profess our faith in Christ Jesus and to confess our faith in the church, the faith in which we baptize. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord be with you.
0: And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift up.
1: Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It
0: is right to give God. Is his
1: Let us pray. We give thanks to you, eternal God, for you nourish and sustain all living things with the gift of water. In the beginning of time, your spirit moved over the watery chaos, calling forth order and life. In the time of Noah, you destroyed evil by the waters of the flood, giving righteousness a new beginning. You led Israel out of slavery, through the waters of the sea, into freedom of the promised land. In the waters of Jordan, Jesus was baptized by John and anointed with your spirit. By the baptism of his own death and resurrection, Christ sets us free from sin and death and opened the way to eternal life. We thank you, O oh God, for the water of baptism. In it, we are buried with Christ and his death. From it, we are raised to share in his resurrection, and through it, we are reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. Send your spirit to move over this water, that it may be a fountain of deliverance and rebirth. Wash away the sin of all who are cleansed by it. Raise miles to new life and graft him into the body of Christ. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon him, that he may have the power to do your will and continue forever in the risen life of Christ. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, be all praise, honor, and glory, now and forever. Amen. Every time we gather in this place, we are reminded that we do not walk through this life alone. God has woven our lives together. We survive not as individuals, but as a community. With renewed commitment to solidarity, we are invited to bring what we have together. Our tithes and offerings will now be received. of comfort and challenge, we come before you in awe of all that you have given us. We bring you these gifts so that they may be used to do your reconciling work in the world. We pray in the name of Jesus, who stretches and empowers us this day. Amen. Let us pray. Loving God, you enable us to hold multiple truths at once, and for this we give you thanks. In this holy place, we dare to believe that you are God on high and also God with us, both transcendent and incarnate, fully human and fully divine. You are infinitely mysterious and also intimately knowable. You are a God who refuses to be boxed in, and also a God who is as close to us as our own breath. Inspired by your own rich and vibrant complexity, we allow ourselves to be multiple things at once as well. We have much to be grateful for this day, and we also acknowledge the reality of evil in this world. We thank you for giving us room to honor our joy and our pain at the same time to allow them to coexist. God, we give gratitude for all the glimmering goodness in our lives. We thank you this day for those who love us, who think about us during our days. We thank you for those who meet us with graciousness and curiosity, for the warmth and rest and self-understanding, for new beginnings, for second chances, for celebrations together. And God, we also bring before you all That which feels too heavy for us to hold. We pray for wounded relationships, for daunting diagnoses, for haunting addictions and exploitative practices. We pray for the growing political divides in our country and for the ways that we are tempted to otherize those with whom we disagree. And we also pray for the deeply complicated war waging raging in Israel and Gaza. We condemn the brutal violence and terror while also asking you for your wisdom. Do not allow us, O God, to surrender our humanity. Keep us from finding justifications for the unnecessary loss of life. Do not allow us to be numb to the cries of our Israeli and Palestinian siblings. Protect the parts of us that still wince in pain reminding us that our souls were created to stir. O God, who holds our tensions and complexities, when we have no words for the prayers in our hearts, when we are too clouded by despair and anger and fear to even ask for what it is we need, we thank you for the prayers that have been passed down to us through the ages. We thank you, God, for the prayers that our ancestors and our grandmothers, our uncles and friends and neighbors have prayed for us even without our knowing. Help us to know that you hear deeper than words, that you hear the quiet utterances of our hearts even now. We ask you to hear us as we pray the prayer that your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done
0: In peace with this assurance, it was never really about the close. So go in awe. Go in wonder. Go in gratitude for the boundless generosity of our God. And as you go, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.